The title of this morning's message is The Incarnation, the Ultimate Trojan Horse. <laughs> In just a few days, we will be celebrating Christmas. For some, that means celebrating the coming of Santa Claus, a jolly old soul who magically brings gifts to all the good little boys and girls in the world. For others, us including, we celebrate the coming of God into the world as a human being through whom he brings the greatest gift of all, salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. And he offers it not to those who are good, but those who could never be good enough on their own, if they will only but believe on his name. This coming of God is known as the incarnation. The word incarnation is just a fancy Latin word, meaning being or taking flesh. This, of course, refers to what God did through the Lord Jesus Christ. God entered into our human world by becoming a human being himself. He was incarnated. He was God wrapped in humanity. And we see this truth in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, the question then is, why would God do this? Why would God put himself in such a limiting situation as to become human? The short answer is, of course, love. The long answer is because he needed a Trojan horse in order to conquer the enemy who had kidnapped his kids. In order to understand the long answer, we need to know the story of the mythical Trojan horse. According to Greek mythology, there was a 10-year war between Greece's king Sparta and the prince of Troy, whose name was Paris. And the legend says that Prince Paris had abducted the king's wife, Helen, who was supposed to have been the daughter of the Greek god Zeus and who was also supposed to be the most beautiful woman in the world. So the king of Sparta waged war against the city of Troy in an effort to rescue his wife, Helen, and bring her back home. But the city was well fortified, and the Greeks were unable to penetrate its walls. The direct approach simply wasn't working. <laughs> so the king of Ithaca, who had been dragged into participating in this war, came up with a strategy behind the now famous Trojan horse. This king realized if he was ever going to win this war, it would have to be done from the inside out. But how could he get the Trojans to let them in? <laughs> I need to get in to overcome them, but how do I get in? And that's when the giant wooden horse came into the picture. The king of Ithaca had his men build this gigantic wooden horse big enough to hold 30 of his best warriors. Supposedly, it only took them three days. Then they inscribed a message on the side of the horse, dedicating it to the goddess Athena as an apology for their desecrating one of her temples and as a thank offering for a safe return home. Then they burned their camp to the ground and left, leaving nothing but the horse and the spy. The spy was supposed to have been left there purposely as a scapegoat offering. When the armies of Troy came to see what was going on, the spy convinced them that the Greeks had given up and gone home, and they left the giant horse as a gift to their goddess. 
When asked why the horse was so large, the spy told them that the king of Ithaca didn't want them to take the horse back to the temple of their goddess <laughs> and get all the credit for this wonderful gift. <laughs> and so uh, they made it to be immovable so that no one else could take credit for this wonderful gift to their god. Of course, telling Trojans that they shouldn't do something or couldn't do something only made them want to do it more. <laughs> and so they did. They moved the Trojan horse. They pulled it into the city, right into the heart of the city, so everyone could rejoice in the fact that they had finally beaten the Greeks, and this was the proof of their victory. They took the offering away from the Greeks and made it their own. And that means they were completely victorious. Well, when the city finally went to sleep, the spy signaled to the ships who had since sailed back to land, and the warriors within the belly of the horse descended and let the armies of Ithaca and Sparta into the city of Troy. And of course, the war against Troy was over. <laughs> they had gotten inside and they had, they had conquered their enemy, and Helen was returned to her husband. Now, this story is a fable based on Greek mythology. But within this story, we see a reality of how an enemy is usually overcome, and that's from within. It was the combination of the wisdom of the king of Ithaca and the pride of the Trojans that brought the Trojan horse into the very heart of the city of Troy, enabling the Greeks to conquer them. So both wisdom and pride were involved in overthrowing the kidnappers and returning Helen to her husband. And so it is with the story of our salvation. Our story begins with God's kids playing in a garden of perfection. The older of the two, Adam, had been warned by his father about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, telling him that he would certainly die if he ate from that tree. Adam didn't think much of it, apparently, <laughs> because he could freely eat from all the trees in the garden. So not being able to eat from one tree wasn't that big a deal because everything was so good. A little while later, God told Adam that even though everything in the garden was perfect and everything was good, it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So God put Adam to sleep and pulled out a rib, and from that rib he created Eve. And Adam was a happy man. <laughs> but not too much longer after that, God's kids had a talking visitor come into their garden. It was a very sneaky little snake. Now, from the Trojan horse story, we know that overcoming the kingdom is a whole lot easier if it's done from within. So the snake came into the middle of their garden where the forbidden tree was at. The snake obviously wasn't scary to either Adam or Eve. They weren't threatened or intimidated by it. In fact, it was rather friendly, you know, like most kidnappers. <laughs> of course, the snake only pretended to be friendly in order to get close to them. And then he tricked them into making the deadly decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, the snake got exactly what he wanted, the power to rule. Satan wanted what God had given to Adam and Eve, rulership and dominion over all creation. After Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, their eyes were open to their own nakedness and helplessness. And they tried to make coverings for themselves. But then God showed up. 
You know what happens when God shows up or dad shows up and you've been naughty? <laughs> you hide. <laughs> and Adam hid. <laughs> and But he heard God calling, Adam, where are you? Funny question. Isn't that the first question a parent would ask a child on the phone if a kidnapper had the child called his parents? Their first words would be a very panicked, where are you? Are you okay? Who did this to you? <laughs> Have you ever had any of your kids panic you? <laughs> I remember when my oldest son was about three years old. We lived in a townhouse, and I went downstairs to change over the laundry, and when I came back up, he was gone. He was alone in my house with the doors locked. I come back up, and I can't find him anywhere. He was three, so he could have maybe gotten to the, the knob and gotten out. So I'm looking everywhere, calling, Stephen, where are you? Stephen, where are you? I can't find him anywhere. He's not outside. He's not upstairs. He's not anywhere in the house. And I am frantic. And I call my mom, pray for me. I can't find my son. And she said, okay, I will pray. And I was like, okay, this baby has got to be here somewhere. <laughs> and I'm looking in cupboards and uh, you know, under furniture and everywhere I can think to look. And finally, I hear some giggling. He had crawled into an end table <laughs> and closed the door behind him. And here I am frantically looking everywhere. And he's like, <laughs> I hide, Mommy. I hide. I said, no, bad, wrong. We don't hide from Mommy. <laughs> but I was so relieved that I had found him. Unlike me, God did not panic when he had called to Adam. Because <sighs> God knew what had actually happened. You see, I was afraid that day that something had happened to my son. But God didn't panic because he already knew what had happened to his son. He already knew that he had lost his kids and his creation to an enemy, at least for a time. Now, even though God didn't panic about what his kids had done, my guess is he felt a great sadness. Because great love feels great loss. And I imagine <laughs> that our father very deeply felt the loss of his connection with his kids and his creation. I think it might have been like when a believer goes home too early. Their loved ones know that they will see that person again. They know that they haven't actually lost the one they love. They have simply lost the connection for a time. But they will see that loved one again and be reunited. But knowing what the future holds doesn't take away the sorrow of not being able to have our loved ones with us now. I imagine that it was kind of like that for God. He was still with them, but the connection was gone. God told Adam, that in the day that he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would die. 
And what that really meant was that Adam and Eve would lose their connection to God and their position in God as Earth's rulers and would fall under the power of someone who did not love them. That thought really struck me when I was preparing this message. Mankind fell under the power of someone who did not love them. Adam and Eve, of course, didn't really understand what they had done to themselves and all of mankind. And this reminded me of when my kids were teenagers. <laughs> I think all of them eventually got to the point where they tried to threaten me with social services. If I didn't give them their way, I'll call social services on you. They'll make you give me what I want. <laughs> no, they won't. <laughs> but I called their bluff. I said, okay, I want you to know every decision I make regarding you is based on the truth that I love you and I want what's best for you. So when I don't let you do certain things, it's because I'm smarter than you and it's my responsibility to keep you safe, even from yourself. But if you really believe you would be better off with people who do not love you, go for it. <laughs> and thankfully, <laughs> they never tried to actually do it. They thought about it really hard, but the concept of living with somebody who didn't love you was a little bit scary. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve didn't come to that conclusion before they sinned, but they realized pretty quickly afterward what it was like to live under the power of someone who did not love them. Start talking about babies, just start crying. <laughs> Adam and Eve had legally forfeited their rulership and their life-giving connection to God. But God never left them. God already had a plan to rescue and restore his kids to their God-given place as sons and daughters of God who rule and reign through the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We see this first indication of this in Genesis 3 when God is addressing the actions and the consequences of everybody in the garden that day. And he says to the kidnapping serpent in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, because thou hast done this, thou hast tricked my kids, <laughs> because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. I like it in the uh, easy-to-read version. Easy-to-read version isn't my favorite version, but sometimes it just cracks me up. So I like it. <laughs> it says this, I will make you and the woman enemies to each other. Your children and her children will be enemies. You will bite her child's foot, but he will crush your head. So God tells the kidnapping serpent that his days are numbered and that there is coming a day when the seed of a woman shall crush his head with a fatal, devastating, and final blow. But in the process, the serpent would bruise or inflict damage, which would be neither fatal nor final to the heel of the seed. So God let his kids know that what they had done did actually change everything for them, but that he knew about it beforehand and that he knew that this would happen and he planned accordingly. I'm sure it seemed to them that day that all was lost, but God says, no, all is not forever lost. God had a plan to recover 
all that they have forfeited. We see a little prophetic sneak peek of this truth in the story of David at Ziglag. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we see David returning to Ziglag after being asked to leave the army of the Philistines because they feared he would become a Trojan horse to them. They, of course, don't use those words. But they were afraid that he would go into the battle as their friend and exit the battle as their conquering enemy. So he and his men were disinvited to the battle. So David and his men return home. But when they do, they find that kidnappers have come and taken all that is precious to them, including their wives and children. We see this in 1 Samuel 30, verses 3 and 4. So David and his men come to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were all taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Here again we see great love has great sorrow, but great love also has great power. David seeks the word and the will of the Lord. David knows where his strength lies, and we see this in verse 8. David inquired of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the up-close and personal name of the covenant-keeping God. David inquired of that God, Yahweh, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David and his men set out to find the kidnappers, and of course God helps them <laughs> by leading them to an abandoned slave, kind of like a spy, <laughs> who had been left behind because he was sick and who just happens to be able to lead David straight to the camp of his enemies. And David and his enemies thoroughly and devastatingly destroy every last one of them. And all was recovered. We see this in verse 19. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil, nor anything that they had taken to them. David brought back all. This is the heart of our Father, to completely destroy the power of the one who kidnapped his kids and to recover all that belongs to them. But unlike David in the Old Testament, who might have come charging into the enemy's camp on horseback, God had to use a different kind of horse, so to speak, to retrieve his kids and his creation. The enemy, Satan, had legal claim to all that he had taken, but it was because he tricked Adam and Eve into forfeiting it. So God couldn't come just charging in on a white horse and take back everything they lost. God had to rescue his kids and his creation legally. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't see a lot of information about Satan, probably because there wasn't a whole lot people could do about him back then. <laughs> but in the New Testament, we do see who and what he really is. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says, The prince of the power of the air is what he is. He is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Disobedience, according to the Strongs, is obstinate and rebellious disbelief. It has nothing to do with naughty Christians. <laughs> this is about people who refuse, who look straight in the face of God and says, absolutely not, I will not bow. That's the prince of the power of the air at work in their life. In, in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is described as the God of this world who blinds the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, 
who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then in John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says this to his disciples. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. It is evident that Satan has had ruling power over this world and its people, but not ownership. Ownership has always remained with God. And we see this in Psalms 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, capital L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, the up close and personal God who keeps covenant, that God. <laughs> Everything belongs to that God and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So every human being belongs to its creator. Everything and everybody are actually God's property. But Satan had tricked Adam and Eve into abdicating their authority over the earth by getting them to sin. Adam and Eve and the entire world came under the power of sin and death when they disobeyed God. The entire world came under the power of the curse. God told them that even the ground was cursed because of what they had done. So all of humanity was under the power of the curse of sin and death, and therefore under the power of Satan. All humanity lived under the power of someone who did not love them, and that was not okay with God. God told Satan the serpent, the seed of a woman will crush your head. <laughs> so Satan knew his downfall was supposed to come through a human being. Satan knew the Old Testament prophecies too, but he didn't really know how a human could defeat him. Because all humans were under the power of sin and death, except sort of for those Israelites. <laughs> God had given them a sacrificial system whereby a substitute could die in their place and they could live in the blessing of God. But they really weren't very good at staying inside the terms of that covenant, so he didn't really consider them a real threat. So how exactly could a human being crush his head? Satan did not know. A human being would have to be sinless in order to escape his grasp, and there was no such thing. Then into history enters the ultimate Trojan horse. Christ is born. And we see this story in Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee that Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So God, who is sinless, 
overshadowed Mary in a miraculous way, and she became pregnant with Jesus. And nine months later, a sinless human being is born. That had never been done before. But really, what could a sinless human being really accomplish? How could a sinless human being crush the head of the serpent? In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God is speaking and he prophesies to Bethlehem. As for you, Bethlehem, Pharatha, even though you remain least among the clans of Judah, nevertheless, the one who rules in Israel for me will emerge from you. His existence has been from antiquity, even from eternity. So, according to scripture, a sinless human, who is also in some sense eternal, is going to rule on behalf of God in Israel. That still doesn't explain how a human could crush the serpent's head. What could a human really do? After all, he's still a human being, and human beings are killable. <laughs> so if human beings are killable, then all Satan has to do is to kill this special little human being while he's still a baby, and that would take care of that. And of course, he, did, he had a good try at this. Satan used King Herod to try to eliminate the newly born king of Israel. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So at that point, Satan was just kind of hoping the Son of God was among those who were slain because he knew of the prophecy. But he really didn't know. He also didn't know that Jesus, being sinless and eternal, truly human and truly God, was actually made to be a perfect Trojan horse. We can see that Jesus is both human and God in Philippians 2, beginning with verse 8. Although from the beginning he, Jesus, had the nature of God, he did not reckon his equality with God a treasure to be tightly grasped. Nay, he stripped himself of his glory and took on him the nature of a bondservant by becoming a man like other men, which meant he was killable. And being recognized as truly human, he humbled himself and even stooped to die. Yes, to die on a cross. Once Satan knew who Jesus really was and that he was the one who was supposed to crush his head, he probably thought he could simply get other human beings that he controlled to kill this human son of God. And then he would just continue on in this world as the so-called God of this world. It should be easy peasy because humans are killable. <laughs> so Satan went to work trying to get Jesus killed. <laughs> Satan didn't know that no one could take Jesus' life from him because Jesus was truly human. He could die, but he had to lay down his life. Humans are killable. Therefore, all he had to do was find somebody to help him kill Jesus. Satan even pulled the Trojan horse strategy on Jesus. Because if you're going to destroy your enemy, you've got to get inside your enemy's camp. And that's exactly what he did. He went inside the circle of Jesus' disciples, and he filled Judas's heart 
with betrayal. <laughs> and you know what? It worked perfectly. The Jewish leaders all hated Jesus and wanted him dead too. So when Judas offered to betray Jesus, they couldn't have been happier. And neither could have Satan. He was going to see to it that this so-called son of God was the one who would be completely destroyed, not him. He, this Jesus, was going to die. And the sinless son of God was beaten and bruised, crowned with thorns, and nailed to a cross. This son of God, this son of man, was dying a criminal's death. Oh, I'm sure Satan, and along with the other Jewish leaders, I'm sure they laughed Jesus to scorn. This is the Son of God? This is the one who's supposed to crush Satan's head? Why, he can't even save himself. Did the onlookers at the cross call out to him, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Surely, if Jesus was the real Son of God, he could prove it. Even then, he could stop himself from being crucified. He could prove to everyone who he really was. But doing that would not have rescued God's kids or God's creation from the captivity of sin and death. And mankind would have had to remain under the power of somebody who did not love them. Jesus didn't need to prove who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He was the promised seed of Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the kidnapping serpent. He would destroy the power of sin and death by carrying everyone and their sin into death for them and as them. He was the ultimate Trojan horse. All of humanity was hidden in Christ as he took our sin into death. And we see this truth in Romans 8, verses 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one offense, Satan tricked God's kids. One offense only. Just as one offense resulted in condemnation for everyone, so one act of righteousness results in justification, innocence, and life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, many people were made sinners, and it's actually all. <laughs> so also through one man's obedience, many people will be made righteous. And one of the wonderful things about being righteous is that Satan has no power or authority over those who have been made righteous. Now, Satan must have been terribly surprised, horribly surprised when he found out he was the instrument of his own defeat. <laughs> First Corinthians 2, beginning with verse 6, it says this. However, when we are among mature people, we speak a message of wisdom, but not the wisdom of this world or the rulers of this world who are passing off the scene. Instead, we speak about God's wisdom in a hidden secret, which God destined before the world began for our glory. None of the rulers of this world understood it, because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. By killing Jesus, Satan thought he was crushing the head of the woman's seed. But in actuality, he was only biting his foot. <laughs> The seed of the woman, Jesus, did in fact take on human flesh so that he could be the ultimate Trojan horse, housing all of humanity in his body and taking them into death and then rising from the dead. 
because he had no sin in himself. Death could not keep him in the ground. His resurrection is the proof that the cross worked. Sin was dealt with and the head of the serpent was crushed. The cross wasn't a fatal blow to Jesus, but it was to the serpent. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of this victory as well in uh, verses 13 and 15. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The it is the cross. <laughs> it was the cross where Satan thought he was winning. That God said, oh, you don't have a clue. This is my Trojan horse. And in him is all of humanity. And he's taking all of humanity. And none of them will ever have to submit themselves to you again. He triumphed over all the power of me. He crushed his head. So why didn't Satan suspect what was going on? Satan knew all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Christ. You see, nobody understood the Old Testament prophecies of the Christ. They never understood that God himself would wrap himself in humanity and come and take their very own place. No one even thought of such a miraculous thing. Well, we don't really know why Satan didn't suspect, but it was probably a combination of his pride and his lack of understanding. Satan could never understand God's everlasting love for his kids and his creation because he has no love. He is the epitome of selfishness and pride. So he couldn't understand someone who would love not their own lives, even unto death. He couldn't understand the creator who was also a father and who had no intention of letting some creepy little serpent get away with his kids and his creation. Satan just couldn't understand God's kind of love. And he certainly never figured on a human being being willing to go into a place of death on behalf of somebody else. And he also never figured on a human being actually being righteous and sinless and able to rise from the dead. Satan never figured on Jesus using the same strategy that he had used with Judas. If you want to conquer a kingdom, you have to do it from within. Jesus went into the kingdom of darkness and death in order to conquer it for us. Satan never figured on a God who so loved his earthly kids that he would give his only begotten son as the ultimate Trojan horse, to defeat sin, death, and even Satan himself by dying on a cross. 
And by dying on that cross, Jesus, our David, pursued the enemy and recovered all. He recovered all that that stupid serpent had stolen. (laughs) And he crushed his head. Jesus dealt the final blow to Satan. Satan has no proper authority on this earth. Oh, he will try to trick you out of your authority. But he has no legal right to you even when you sin because your sin no longer makes you unrighteous. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and you have all the power of heaven in your account. There is nothing that you cannot overcome. Satan is a big fat liar. (laughs) Besides being a big fat stupid serpent, he's a liar. (laughs) The incarnation was the perfect Trojan horse strategy. Jesus in his divinity slips into humanity. And through his humanity, he slips into the very hand of his enemy, who then takes him into the middle of his own territory, death. His enemy, Satan, rejoices, thinking he's won the war. But three days later, he rises out of death victorious because he is the sinless son of God. And Satan's kingdom is destroyed, just like the city of Troy. All is conquered and all is returned. Our Father has loved us with an everlasting love. You have never lived one second apart from his love. You have never been one breath away from his love. He is always interfering and messing up in your life (laughs) to show you that he's there. He's always messing in our stuff, trying to get us to go his way and do things his way so that we can understand this amazing grace, this love that says you are worth dying for. You are worth it all. He went into death to bring back and recover all. Our relationship with our Father, the presence of God in our life, and the right to rule and reign through grace and righteousness. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your amazing grace. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus was willing to let the serpent bite his foot. We look at the cross and we are devastated. But in the light of eternity, it was just a little bite. Christ was willing to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, which was pay the penalty for our sin, which is death. You have risen from the dead victorious over all the power of the enemy, over all the power of sin and death, and you have raised us up with you and seated us in the heavenly places. Father, teach us to rule and reign over all the power of the enemy in our life. Teach us, Father God, to see others in the light of your grace. Help us to see their family members that are really annoying in the light of the grace. Thank you, Father God, for Christmas. We know the world doesn't celebrate what we celebrate, but Father God, because Christians are celebrating, others can see, others can know that this wonderful wonderful grace that they have been rescued and they don't even know it yet father god we thank you we ask that by your spirit that this holiday season you would help us to love and live in the power of your grace and father god we thank you for it in jesus name amen